the society, the external is always emphasized. And how handsome and beautiful a person is, but we should know that what actually is valuable is the internal. <coughs> and so here I think you are very beautiful people. So I'm very happy to be in your company. So we're just going in a few minutes before Prashadam. <laughs> um, I was going to tell a little service story because today the theme is service. And then as one producer, you'll have questions and answers. So I thought the service story that I could uh, speak about happened, started about uh, five years ago in 2017. Uh, my husband and I finished this film that many of you saw, I appreciate the month of the movement and the Swami started it all. So that was a long, expensive project, much more expensive and much longer than we anticipated. And around the same time, I finished writing a memoir, five years, 11 months, and a lifetime of unexpected month. I like short titles, right? <laughs> so that was also a huge project. It took an embarrassing long time for me to do. So both those were done. And I just thought to myself, after these projects were finished, coincidentally at the same, around the same time, I just thought to myself, I didn't say it to anyone, but I had a very clear thought. It's been 40 plus years that I've been writing and photographing and helping my husband with film work. And I'd really like to do something different. It was vague, you know, what different could be anything. But it was very clear at the same time. And then about two, two weeks later, I got a letter from the V. Krishna Prabhu. And he said, would you like to be temp president of Dr. Vinatanel? And I was so surprised. I mean, I couldn't speak for three days. <laughs> Where did this come from? Because I had no managerial experience, and it was the last thing that I thought about. I didn't even know that the position was available. I knew Sri Dharmapalu was ill, and I thought he would get better and resume his nerves. So it was a complete shock. But then I thought, well, I've had this thought, you know, I'd like to do something different, and different than anything. And then this letter came, so how could I say, no, I should really try? What to do. So I wound up with Dr. Vinatha and I'm trying. That's my little service story. <laughs> I'm still at Bhakti Vedanta and I'm trying. Uh, so that, you know, it's a, really a step into the unknown that challenges are great uh, for a minute. Uh, and there were many, certainly many challenges, and are many challenges. But, uh, what to do? <laughs> Just face them and go on. So that's my little service story. But, uh, we have some questions. Especially in the past, you know, like with the, the whole thing um, before. Um, how do you, how did you deal with that, and what's the best way to deal with that? And for, especially for us to like look, look back at it, and people tell us things about how it happened, and how do we not cause offence and still you know, go on with that situation? Mm -hmm. 
There was a time in the 80s where there was a tremendous chaos in Prabhupada's movement. And so many of the leaders that he entrusted big responsibilities to had trouble, spiritual trouble. And some of them left the process of Krishna consciousness and started doing other things. So that was extremely tumultuous time and um, caused tremendous stress and tremendous test of faith. We were speaking about it amongst the ladies a little bit. And I think uh, it was such an upheaval. I mean, this temple itself was affected. So many temples were adversely affected by that. And my husband and I also were to see God brothers that we looked up to having trouble. So if they're having trouble, what about us? You know, there were GDC, there were sannyasis, there was tonight. But then over a period of time, I learned to look at that in a different light and look at it in terms of the scriptures. Because pride precedes the fall. And Krishna does not appreciate pride in his followers. The whole pastime of Gopadam and you know, the treatment of Indra by Krishna curbed his pride. So these were young men who initially were very enthusiastic and sincere devotees. And they were given responsibility. And after Prabhupada left, they were given a lot of power and followers, money prestige, and without spiritual maturity, these adversely affected them. So it was seen through the eyes of the scriptures that actually reinforced faith rather than undermined faith. So it was an important lesson that uh, it's not just theory how Krishna does not appreciate pride and takes steps to end the pride in his followers but it was there in front of our eyes. And that was a great lesson for us. And I think the spiritual masters who have come after them really learned that lesson. And now are much more grounded and stable and much better at associating with each other. So if they do have some problems, they can solve them before they become overwhelming. So it was, uh, amidst all the difficulty, what came out was the validity of our scriptures and the danger of pride and false ego. Um, there's been a thing or a move which devotees use to justify arguments in which they quote from Srila Prabhupada. And one devotee was one who quote Srila Prabhupada in a certain time, place, and circumstance. Another devotee was directly contradictory view, also quotes to the Prabhupada from time place, but a different time place and circumstance. And it almost comes to a point of where Srila Prabhupada is being quoted to not not to serve Srila Prabhupada, but to serve the purpose of the individual who is arguing. And we, when we say we should take knowledge from authority, we always say the three groups are the So how are we to Thank you. 
That's a wonderful question. Everyone heard the question? So it's very easy to use Prabhupada quotes almost like bullets, you know, you shoot each other. <laughs> it's like a, a duel. You know. um, and it's very unfortunate because Prabhupada never intended his quotes to be utilized in that way. But I think uh, if we approach his words, whether they're written or spoken, with some humility, and as you say, trying to get the broad picture. You know, you can take a little section out of context and really misunderstand it and misapply it. So it's important to try to gradually read all his books and hear his lectures and conversations and letters. All these things are very instructive. And that way we can get a very well-rounded picture of Prabhupada's, not just the philosophy, but also the spirit in which he spoke the philosophy, behind it, you know. Um, I can give you examples, you know, regarding women, there's so much controversy in this country, and Prabhupada very often says that women should be married in a way that can be protected. But in Washington, D.C., at one point, he was talking about the value of celibacy and how you save so much trouble if you remain single rather than being married. And some, one of his disciples were there and said, even the woman, one of the women, if they can actually remain uh, celibate throughout their lives without becoming frustrated and so forth, they can also benefit in this way. So it was very relevant to the moment, but very unexpected in terms of everything you read, because generally women should be married. So it was quite extraordinary to see him speak in that way. It was, um, you could say it was practical and realistic, and it would be unusual for a woman to follow that path, but he made that space that a woman could do it. An unusual woman who had that kind of spiritual strength and could do it in their consciousness. So my point being that we should really be open to Prabhupada's message and try every day to directly receive his message through the books, through his lectures. We're so fortunate we have so many lectures from Sri Prabhupada. As I said, the conversations are also very revealing. It's really a lifetime of um, hearing and reading for us. And if we just remain steady and do just a little bit every day, we can have this broad experience of Srila Prabhupada and not use little sections to try to, you know, cut each other down with Prabhupada's heads. Prabhupada himself once in a while made fun of that. You know. Everyone is saying Prabhupada said, but can I actually say it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it requires some care. And it's not that we're, we're doing this to try to defeat each other. We're all doing it to try to grow together in Krishna consciousness. It's not that we're trying to establish ourselves as having the truth and the way and the light. It's captured a lot of Prabhupada's moments and his uh, pastime and leader. So what would you say was, uh, was one of your favorite or one of your most like, astonishing moments of Prabhupada that you captured over the years? Well, 
Like what, one of the one of your favorite moments that you've captured or found. Well, there are many little stories. I guess the story um, that comes to mind, I, I mentioned it during the uh, little slideshow, was that I went to photograph Carlton in the afternoon when he was sitting on the rooftop at, at Juhu. And there he would sit every afternoon and meet with the devotees and the guests. It was a very relaxed time. And he was uh, you know, very, very casual. So I came a little bit early, so he was there and I was there, and just the two of us. I had my camera and I was sitting at his feet. He was chanting Japa, and then he looked at me and he said, where should I look? <laughs> and I, didn't, you, I guess you all got it. I didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't have a clue. Where should I look? And then finally it occurred to me, he's saying, where should he look so I can take a picture? So I said, okay, I got the question, now what's the answer? That's the second problem. <laughs> So my mind was racing, and finally I said, wherever you like, Shilapalpa. So he turned a little to his right, and I took a picture, which is the only picture out of thousands that was posed. All the others were candid. That, that one was posed, and it was very sweet. It's strange. It's completely unexpected. I don't know. Where should I look? That's not supposed to be. There was another one when we were walking. We went, went to visit Tirupati, you know, high in the hill there. And uh, he was walking around. We had little cottages where the devotees were living. So the devotees went to their cottages, and Prabhupada kept walking, so I kept walking with him. And finally, he sat down in an, in an enclosed area that was covered with greenery all around. It was a very beautiful area. And he sat down in a bench there. And so I sat down in his feet. I was getting ready to photograph. And he looked at me and he said, is it necessary? Is it necessary? And I realized he just wanted the moment by himself. <laughs> and I was like superfluous. So I kind of scurried away at that point. No photographs of that. But, uh, that's what I'm about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when the Hare Krishna movie was suggested to us, that's exactly what we said. Oh, the question, yeah. He was saying that the uh, Hare Krishna film affected many of his generation, but it was very similar to the Rabbi Wellwisher, which is a shorter biography of Srila Prabhupada. So why have the Hare Krishna film if you had your Rabbi Wellwisher? So that was our objection when we were first proposed to us that we should do this film. We said, well, we don't have your Rabbi Wellwisher. So the devotees pointed out that your ever well-wisher was really more for devotees, that it wasn't so much of an introductory film that could draw non-devotees into Srila Prabhupada's life and teachings, and they said it would be appropriate to make one so that non-devotees could understand who was Srila Prabhupada and what did he give to the world that, uh, that was so well-received in so many quarters. So based on that, we, uh, we went to make the Krishna. Oh. And we were very fortunate that we had three young people who were very expert in uh, the technology because it was totally beyond us, technology. And I think also their presence made it suitable for young people. It felt more suitable than 
talking some time ago to one of the editors of BBT. Her name is Kaishori Devadasi. And she pointed out to me that more often than not, when we speak, we speak to our own age group, our own generation. And it's sometimes difficult to cross generations. Of course, Prabhupada could do that. But generally, like when you preach, you preach to people more or less your own age. And also, I, I feel I connect more probably to people my own age than people in a different generation. So the fact that three young people are working with us, I think, really helped us bridge that generation gap and make it appealing to young people as well. I'm very happy to hear you say that it's appropriate for young people. When I read Srila Prabhupada's books, one of the areas I find quite difficult is his statements on women. And the thing that I always find inspiring is when I see personalities like yourselves and other senior Vaishnavis who knew Srila Prabhupada's mood, know his books inside out, and not just defend them, but, but promote them. And, and I find that uncomfortable, like sometimes giving it, I think, well, how, how, how are people going to understand that statement? So I just wanted to, maybe this is something you've spoken on before, but I'd love to know how, how, how should we explain some of those statements that appear on one level to be derogatory, but we know it's coming from well, a place of love because it's Srila Prabhupada. Mm. <coughs> yeah, that's, I was uh, recently speaking with a devotee named Radhika Vinda at the manor. He's a head of the Krishna Wisdom, which is the outreach branch of Srila Prabhupada. And he's saying more and more often, uh, women and men actually approach him with negative feelings about Prabhupada's books because of these statements, especially about women. So when Radhika Raman was at the temple recently, uh, Radhika Raman, if you don't know, he's a professor of comparative religion in Utah State University. He grew up as a devotee. He was homeschooled by his mother, who was a devotee. He and his brother had PhDs. And, uh, Exceptional, exceptional devotees. So <coughs> I had a few moments, so I asked him this question. So he said at first, when he was asked by his students about, say, women are less intelligent, that's a very common one. At first, he would minimize it, and then he realized that was not the correct approach. The first thing is you validate the concern, and it is a concern, and you recognize that it's a concern. And then he mentioned that it's not just the Hare Krishna movement, but if you look at the Christian religion, Judaic religion, Islam, it's very similar in terms of the derogatory remarks regarding women. So that was one thing. And then another point is that in bhakti, we transcend these designations. Bhakti transcends all material designations, and anyone in bhakti can reach the highest destination without discrimination at all. And he also pointed out an important um, consideration that when these scriptures were spoken, the predominant organization of society was Varnashram. Especially the Varners, you have the Brahmanas, the Chakras, the Vaishras, the Sudras, and the leaders of those different groups were male. And so women have intelligence, it differs from male intelligence, but because the leaders of these various groups have the male, and they established the male intelligence as the standard. And when they looked at the woman's intelligence, they said that is less from their point of view. 
Uh, it's a different type of intelligence, but from the male point of view, it's considered less. And so therefore, this term, less intelligent, came up. Whereas the woman intelligence, you know, if you have, for instance, a room full of five-year-olds, it's more likely that a woman will be successful in that room than a male. So there's an intelligence there, but it's not the male intelligence. So, when, you know, when you have a term less, what are you talking less than what? You know, what is your standard? So they're, they're establishing the male intelligence as standard and not recognizing the, the female intelligence of being able to nurture and comfort and give shelter with their own genius. So that, that was, uh, I felt, uh, you know, a logical approach to that. But it means someone has to have a little bit of patience and sit through that explanation. Mm -hmm. uh, if they don't have the patience, they may not be able to sit through the whole thing. And also, the, the final point he mentioned was that we need to look at the author of these purports to the Prabhupada and see how he dealt with women, his mood towards women. And he gave women responsibility, he gave them all respect. He never treated them as less, mm. ever. And another point is that throughout the Bhagavatam, we find there's no, um, no support for any group thinking they're superior to any other group. Mm. There's no support for pride or superiority complex. When Brahma's creating, one of his prayers to Krishna is that please don't let me have a superiority complex. Mm. And here he's the creator of all the worlds. So it's kind of a trap for men that if they start thinking they're more intelligent, that, that's mine. Mm. Right? So it's an easy trap to fall into when you hear these terms. And an unfortunate, uh, could be an unfortunate result of this. What do you think? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a trap. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking that if we reveal our mind to someone, you know, someone that maybe we trust about personal issues or something confidential, uh, and we find that the information goes to other places, and maybe someone tells us that, oh, this person said this and this person said this. How can we deal with that without uh, you know, causing offences or uh, getting upset with the person? Is everyone here? So, confidentiality is so important in devoting relationships, and a breach of confidentiality really harms relationships. So, you can know that not to be confidential with that individual in the future. And also, I think it's very beneficial if you go to that individual and say, you know, this was an intimate conversation, it was a private conversation, I didn't mean for it to be spread, and I really um, affected our relationship, obviously, and I'm, I'm really sorry that this has happened, and try to awaken in them the idea that for a bonding between devotees, we have to honor this confidentiality, so that will be helpful for them. And then you can know to be careful dealing with that person in the future. Perhaps find other people who will maintain the confidentiality. And that way the relationship can grow between you and the person. And we can't be confidential with everyone. So we have to be, have some discernment who to be confidential with. And then when you find that person, then 
relationship can really become strong and it can be beneficial for both of you. But I think it's important to go to that person and say, I'm so disappointed, you know, this was just between you and me and all of a sudden it's kind of, kind of elsewhere. It's not acceptable. It's an important lesson for that person to be aware of. So like the question is, how much free will does the living entity have? Like I know we say we have free will in how we react to things, but even in how we react to them, Krishna still knows what we're going to do. So is that really free will? And like, if so, just how, how does the concept work? I think that's really the question. Hmm. When Prabhupada was asked about free will, he gave the example of the seasons, like now it's summer, so we know in a few months it's going to be fall and it'll be winter. So in that way, we have a general idea of what's going to happen. So also, a living entity has free will. I don't think we should blame Krishna for our choices ever. But we should take responsibility for them and learn from them. And understand that we do have this ability to choose our association, to choose our habits, to choose our, our path in life, and never feel this victim mentality or this blame mentality and why did Krishna do this to me? This is very unhelpful um, mentality. So yes, that free will is there and we should own it. That this is, you know, I have the intelligence, I have the teachings, I have the association, so let me make the right choices or at least consult others who can help me make the right choices. And in that way, really grow in Christian consciousness. Just a follow-up question. Does the amount of free will you have increased as you go up the road, like the particular passion to business? Does the amount of free will you have increased also? Yes, definitely. Just like the animals, they have no karma because they're completely bound by, uh, by their bodies. And a person in the mode of ignorance, also, he may be addicted, he may be addicted to something, have all sorts of bad habits or whatever. But even there, you can find, you know, that you can have two drunkards, like we have the example that a drunkard came into 26 Second Avenue and offered Prabhupada a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> that was his offering. <laughs> so that was his free will. That's what he chose to do, you know, whereas others, they would not not have that uh, mood to, to offer something to a saintly person. So even in the grossest modes as human beings, there's still some amount of free will. But as you say, it grows more as we come up through the modes and the mode of goodness. We can experience and uh, utilize our free will more than in passionate and ignorant modes. Well, in the mode of passion, you can see people just driven by uh, the desire to earn money, the desire to climb up the social ladder. And very often, these are the people you meet on the street. They have no time to stop, to, to understand what you're about, to take a book. There's no time. No two visits. That's driven. Yeah. And forces that appear to be beyond their control, but if they would simply utilize their intelligence long enough. And 
much to hear and not much to dance. How do you balance the free will and Christian's plan? How, how would you find a, a balance of that? Well, we, think we try to use the free will to enact Krishna's plan for us. That's the goal. So we always try to use the free will to see what does Krishna want of me now? How can I use my body, my mind, my words for his pleasure? So if we can do that, then we're following Krishna's plan. And as much as we deviate from that, that's not his plan, that's our plan. So it's, uh, I think it requires some steady dedication to sadhana and again, association of those that we respect to try to feel our way towards him. I guess that. Um, <coughs> um, how is it when the spiritual master leaves and how, how did you make the transition from Bapu and Vani to just Vani? How, 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 yeah, how did you make that transition? Mm -hmm. Everyone heard the question? So, at the time of the spiritual master's leaving is a time of great uh, confusion for all of us on how to left. Um, yeah, it was very chaotic time, and I think making that transition, uh, perhaps we're still making that transition, which is one of the reasons that we have this duel of Prabhupada quotes, <laughs> but uh, we're still in the process of making that transition. And it's really a matter, again, of picking up his spirit and his mood, and trying to carry that in our hearts and lives. And that's not an easy task because his spirit was uh, very broad. And you know, you could ask Prabhupada a question, and you could be a hundred percent sure that his answer would be completely Krishna conscious. But you could never predict what he was going to say. It would always be unexpected because it was so fresh. You know, his Krishna consciousness was so fresh and dynamic. So to pick up that mood is not an easy task, and I think that it's humbling even to consider it. And one of the things most of us, I think, missed in Prabhupada's absence was the clarity that he gave, you know? If you could write to him or ask him a question in per person, and his answer would just be, you know, it would be almost obvious, why didn't I think of that? But we didn't think of it. <laughs> we just didn't. And so that was so, uh, such a source of shelter and protection for us. And we really missed that in his absence. Like the GBC spent 15 years debating whether we could accept disciples or not. 15 years. I'll tell you, Prophet could have solved it in less than five minutes. <laughs> and so, yeah, you really feel the pain of his, uh, of his absence in those types of situations. Five minutes, honestly. It took 15 years of <laughs> debate. So Prophet says that you know, like 
people when they hear about ISKCON they say uh, they're brainwashing the young the youngsters. Uh, so how how was how did Prabhupada deal with those type of uh, statements back in back in when he was around? Yeah, sometimes he would say your brain is dirty, it should be washed. <laughs> 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 There's actually a lot of truth to that. Not only dirty with bad habits, you know, meat eating intoxication, gambling, illicit sex, but also dirty with lust, anger, greed, envy, illusion. So yeah, we want to clean our brains. That's the actual goal, clean our hearts. Why not? That's fair enough, it's a good point. <laughs>
How can you trust the process? Do you simply just believe the people who say they felt the ecstasy and good things, uh, chanting, etc.? Um, or do you wait for yourself to feel similar ecstasy because sometimes there is doubt in the process? I think it's important to start really with the basics. The basics being that I'm not the body, I'm the spirit soul. If we can establish that and accept that, that becomes a platform for everything else. And, uh, you know, we can really feel that because we all want to be happy. It's the nature of who we are. We want to be happy. So we're looking for happiness and everyone's looking for it in a different place. And if you look at the materialists and how they're trying to <coughs> achieve happiness through wealth, through fame, through beauty, through knowledge, through strength, you can look at the people, the epitome of all these different opulences and see that they're not happy. You know? And the example of very wealthy people who are paranoid, they're just paranoid. Powerful people who are full of stress and distress, and beautiful people, and they have ruined relationships, you know, a multitude of divorces. And, and so it becomes obvious that materially, we're not going to find what we're searching for in any one of those opulences, no matter how much we achieve them. Happiness will escape us. So that's a very important point. And if we can accept that point, then we can understand that happiness must be elsewhere. And we can also come to the conclusion that the body changes so much, but we're the same person. How is that? How is that? You know? So there's all sorts of logical arguments that we can use to establish the presence of the soul. And we can also, I think, to some extent, experience that individually, that we are persons beyond the body, you know, this, this spiritual atom that's giving the body life. And so with that basis, then everything else can grow from that, you know, the, the presence of the Supreme Person beyond his energy and the process for reaching him, such a beautiful process of chanting his names, the whole gamut of Bhakti Yoga can be open to us from that foundation, which is so important. Just one last follow-up question. You know, we say we're the body and uh, we're not the soul and not the body. We say we're the soul and not the body a lot. Um, and obviously, like, through logic, we can understand that, that some of us, like myself, lack a lot of logic. Um, so, have you got any, like, practical tips that, like, that we can just implement in our day-to-day lives that will help us realize this? Well, I think the practical tip would be to honor each and every form of life that we see. We tend to say, you know, we're not the body, we're spirit soul, but when we see a cockroach, <laughs> or a mosquito, you know, <laughs> or a fly. So to, to try to see that this, you know, I mean, if you look at these creatures, you know, a mosquito, I mean, it's extraordinary how, how a mosquito functions, you know, and how they find blood. <laughs> it's unfortunate if it's our blood, but still, <laughs> it's just amazing, you know? And, and if you watch them fly, they never have collisions, you know, unlike man-made things and so on and so forth. So it's really, the, the presence of life is amazing, and the beauty and the diversity of life. And so from that, we can appreciate not only the soul, but the creator of this diversity. And, and the, um, the theory of evolution really falls apart when we, when we 
just it's astonishing. Just like uh, any animal you take, the dogs, for instance, have such an intense sense of smell, way beyond ours. So it is absolutely extraordinary. So it, it's uh, miraculous. So how, how do we justify or understand such a miracle except from a miraculous person? I think it's time for, for Sean. Thank you. Right, so much. So